you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. All right, guys, here's a biggie. He's been called America's service guru and the professor of service. In today's episode, I'm featuring Mr. Ian Maxick, who rose from working the kitchen in his family's humble restaurant in Brooklyn at age four, get it, age four, to professional waiter, manager, event planner, caterer, and restaurateur. Ian's going to tell us how he and his family transformed a humble hot dog stand into the world's largest nightclub, regularly serving 6,000 guests on a Saturday night to serving over 55,000 people at a single event. Of course, it's all about systems, folks. We'll hear Ian's service philosophies gleaned from his earliest influences to his formal education at Cornell's hotel school and, of course, his decades in the hospitality business. You have to stay tuned and listen to all of Ian's nuggets of service wisdom. Now, on to the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Of course, we have engaging topics that help restaurants rock their profits, build their brands, and most importantly, perhaps deliver amazing guest service experiences. I am so excited today. I have Mr. Ian Maxick on the show, and he is known as America's Service Guru. Now, service, as you all know, is near and dear to my heart. And I am so pleased and excited to feature Ian today because he and I are what I would call kindred spirits. We share such similar service philosophies. And with that said, welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Roger. Yes, we are joined at the hip. It is is just so good and so rewarding to see someone else doing this. And you're doing it so well. Uh, My my, uh, restaurant association here in Albuquerque is using all of your stuff. And uh, and that's fine. I'm 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 very happy. I wish there were more of us around, you know, who 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 train people, because training to me is the biggest morale builder a staff can have. You ought to see after we finish training. I'm sure the same happens. The smiles and the thank yous. Uh, it it's just overwhelming. Well, you know, I hear from many many people in this business, and it's uh, I guess a personal opinion of mine, and maybe you share this opinion. That service in so many cases, and not just in the restaurant business, is really a lost art. You know, back in your generation, and and there was a time when, you know, maitre d's were in every restaurant, and you'd go to a gas station, and they'd wash your windows, and, you know, they'd put air in your tires while they were filling your gas, and all of those things apply to this business, all that common courtesy and service, and right now, it's a whole different generation, and service in many cases has been lost. I mean, what do you feel about that, Ian? I'm going into a, a restaurant, uh, Wicks, here in uh, in Albuquerque, which is a breakfast and lunch restaurant. They do very, very well. Um, and um, the the uh, server comes over, female server, uh, waiter, waiter female. I don't like to use the word waitress because for some reason, waitresses feel that the word waitress is demeaning. Yeah. So waiter female, all right? Okay. Waiter sure. is neuter. It's neuter now. Mm-hmm. And and she says to... to uh, to something like uh, 10 women. How are you guys doing? Hi. But they're not guys. So what is whatever happens to ladies? Good morning. How are you? No, everything is how are you guys doing? That's the start. So I'm turned off by that. I, I know maybe I'm old fashioned. I don't know what it is. You know, when I got here, the, the uh, first week I'm here, I'm coming out of Walmart. 
and a lovely African-American family is coming out of Walmart, all of them with like three kids, uh, mother, dad. They look at me and they all point to me and yell out New York because I was wearing a jacket and a tie. Um, in my house, we always dressed formal. Right? We had to put a tuxedo on to use the john. Dad had like like a, a tuxedo for every single day of the of the week, and my my mom had gown after gown after gown. I only had like two or three tuxedos, but but we we always dressed, and and um, I, I'm I'm seeing now dress for success at some of these uh, uh, meetings to try to get a job, you know, job job fairs, and and I I visited some because I wanted to see who was there. My God, dress for success. I guess is jeans with flip flops, and I'm there again in a in a jacket and a tie and pants, and maybe there's one other person in a line of maybe 50 people who's wearing a jacket. That to me is dressed for success. I may be wrong, and all of you listeners out there may say he's crazy. You know we don't do that anymore. Everything is informal. Well, this to me, this right now I'm wearing my my. Uh, my, I always bring my own silverware to every job, so I'm wearing a tie with silverware. <laughs> I love it, the signature tie. Well, you know. Yeah, the signature tie, uh, always that. And, and um, I like to put a jacket on and really dress for success. When I had my agency, I had an agency in New York City called USA Waiter. I sold it in the 1990s. When I sold it, Roger, I had some 600, 600 waiters, male and female, on my rolls, and about 50 uh, – maitre d's chefs managers and uh, most of them went to my school which at that time was called the uh, the school service of uh, the, the service arts institute uh, now it's the service arts institute then it was the school for the service arts but i sold that name to a young lady who was helping me uh, debbie and she's out in san diego right now so now now i'm called the service arts institute and uh, it's it's a traveling school it's a traveling school. I, I don't have a building. Right now, you're looking at me in my own home office. By well, the way, I'm yeah. 80 years old, and I don't understand the work ethic of the kids today, Roger. They get tired in like four or five hours. And and when I'm lecturing to them, they, they raise their hand and say, please, Mr. Max, a professor service, can, can we please take a break? And I'm used to, in the nightclub industry, I was used to 15 to 17 hour days. That was our work ethic in our family. I started work about one o'clock in the afternoon, maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, and finished at 5 a.m. in the morning. At 5 a.m. in the morning, we went to Dubrow's, which was a cafeteria, and everybody was there and we were all having breakfast. That was my life, and I never got tired. Um, in Vegas, uh, from the stage uh, of the Rio, I'm talking to 1,000 catering executives. And after about three or four hours, they're raising their hands, say, please, Mr. Maxick, take a break. Take a break. I just keep going. I just keep going. You can <laughs> like, still like run circles around most people, it seems. I'm sure you probably do the same. Well, I, you know, I'm, we're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. When we're on stage, I'm having so much fun. That, that uh, you know, I, I kid, but it's the truth. When the refrigerator door opens and the light goes on, I do 10 minutes of training. I think I'm on stage. That's well, it. Every I always said to my staff, when the door opens for business, the curtain goes up and it's showtime and you're all actors and actresses on stage. <laughs> you know, and that's one of my mantras because the restaurant business is entertainment. It's show business. And 
you know, let's go back to dress for success. I don't disagree with your philosophy, and I do believe that every impression is a lasting one, and those impressions are either negative or they're positive, and somehow negative impressions in the restaurant business overshadow positive impressions. And what you're going to remember isn't, you know, necessarily a great experience, but you're going to tell everybody about a horrible experience, you know? And, and you wrote a book called Service Stinks, and we're going to go there in a few minutes. But let's get, let's get into your story. Let's, okay, so the audience doesn't know that you were literally born in a restaurant, a hot dog stand, okay, which is an amazing story. And then from there, you were working in a kitchen at age seven, and you learned so much from your grandmother and later your parents, and this whole thing went beyond your wildest dreams of where that original hot dog stand could lead. So why don't you take us on that journey and bring us up to speed on... I actually started in the kitchen at age four. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 by age seven, I was really restaurant literate. I, I was really into it. Uh, we went home for dinner every single night, uh, and we, we got home like five thirty, six o'clock, and then went back to the to the restaurant. Went back to the roadside tavern because originally it was the roadside tavern. Later on, it became uh, the town and country club. But we went we went back and we we had regular dinner and. Um, I, I was part of it. The only thing we spoke or talked about at dinner was the business. So I was brought up in the business. I, I was like very mature by, by age seven. I was really into it. You see, my, my mom once showed me a picture of stools. And the stools were stools that they gave me as I was sitting behind the sandwich counter making sandwiches. And when I was only four years old, the stool was very high. I was very low. Of course. And by the time I got to seven, it was a high school, a high stool. So the stools got bigger and bigger and bigger. And my mom kept the, the picture of all the stools. And she showed me all the stools. Son, these are the stools that you were sitting on while you were making sandwiches. Um, I, I was really, I loved it. I, I'm sure you love it too. I know you love it. Well, it's passion. You know, you get into the business and for so many reasons. And what you're saying right now are just uh, several. Yeah, I mean, it gets in your blood and it becomes something you do, but it's more than just a vocation. It is a true passion. My, my mom and dad had only two things on the menu. In nine, I was born in 1937. Um, um, we, we, um, we opened the, the roadside, we'll call the roadside tavern mm -hmm. in 1937. It had only two things on the menu when we opened. That was a hot dog and Coca-Cola. And I later on became kind of the allergy kid. And there was only two things that I was really allergic to, hot dogs and Coca-Cola. No <laughs> oh, go figure. Yeah, so I, I, used, I used to get a, a hay fever attack or an asthma attack every time I had a hot dog and Coca-Cola. Well, you know, when I went to school, when I went to the Cornell Hotel School and they showed you, they took us to the meat, uh, the, we, we had a meat course in New York and I watched hot dogs being made and I almost threw up. Yes. I couldn't believe yes. what was that. And now I know why I was allergic to hot dogs. The true story tasted, of the hot dog. <laughs> tasted, tasted great, but didn't get along with, with, uh, with my, my background. Anyway, we, we went on from the hot dog stand um, to, uh, to hamburgers uh, and, and fried chicken and steak sandwiches and went through every single phase of the restaurant industry. Um, in around in, in in around about the 1940s, the late 1940s, um, we we started to bring in entertainment. Monk Herbert 
was a monk herbert trio. It was an African-American trio. And I have pictures around 1941, 1942 of me and Monk Herbert's son. And we're both carrying sticks, which represented guns, because we were about to get into World War II. And Floyd Bennett Field, the Naval Air Station, was only about 10 minutes away from us. So all these uh, Naval flyers would come in. My father's name was Ben. My mom's name was Doris. Yellow Ben, Doris, give me a hot dog. And they really made us. They really made us. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that the war made us, but it did. My, my dad had punctured eardrums, so he could not not, not go into the service. Um, he, he started as a second job. He started making parachutes, uh, but he couldn't go into the service. And my mom took over, and she was watching the, the hot dog stand herself. And as I told you, we went through every single phase of the restaurant industry, once we brought in Monk Herbert, we put in an outdoor dance floor. And the, and the, the, uh, the, uh, the airmen would come in with their girls and do the jitterbug, and I would be watching this. And we, we brought in the Monk Herbert trio, so they were doing live music. And they were dancing and throwing things up in the air and under their seats and all over the place. It was really exciting, but when it rained, we couldn't open. So my dad said, let's build a, a, a building over the dance floor. So yeah. we built a building over the dance floor. Pavilion. We, we combined that with the hot dog stand. The, the, the audience always tells you what they want. They said, Ben, please, a little more than hot dog. So we want the hamburgers and the steak sandwiches and the fried chicken. And then we brought in Chinese food. And wow. we, had, we had a Chinese kitchen as well as an American kitchen. So we were famous for our Chinese food. So was the Copacabana in New York City. The Copacabana was our biggest competitor. The Copa had maybe six, seven hundred seats. It, by 1955, when we opened and tore down the roadside tavern and built the town and country club, we had over 2,000 seats. And every seat was ringside. There were absolutely no poles whatsoever. So from anywhere, you could see the stage. The stage was so large that 600 people could dance on our stage. We had our, we had our own chorus line. And then, of course, we played host to the biggest names in show business over the years. The only act that never worked for us, Roger, was Frank Sinatra Sr. We gave Frank Sinatra Jr. his first break. We discovered Bobby Darin. We discovered Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett was our discovery. When Tony Bennett came in, everything changed. We had police on horseback outside holding back people with lines all around the block. And in those days when we first started, we're talking about 700 covers maybe on a Saturday night. And then by 1955, when we built the new place, uh, you, we, we were even more than 2,000. A busboy would bend down, pick something up. We would throw a tablecloth over him and seat two people. Because we, we had, we had a, a table that was 30 inches by 24 inches. Every table was a deuce. And we put them all together to form sure. fours, sixes, or eights. Flexibility, or yeah. Right. And if you turn the table one way, you can get close to 3,000 or more people in. And if you turned it the other way, only 2,000. So on a Saturday night with an 8 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and 2 a.m. show, we were able to serve more than 6,000 covers. 
That's amazing. I can't imagine. I want to ask you how you can evolve from a hot dog stand to serving 6,000 covers. That would be one question of mine. But also, uh, did you have any fire marshal regulations that uh, back then were they as strict as they are today with how many people you could fit in a place? Uh, you know, these things happen. Yes, we did. But when we when we sat those pe- those those people down ringside to see Tony Bennett, yeah. all of a sudden those regulations just disappeared. I can only imagine. <laughs> and there were tragedies way back when, wasn't it? The Coconut Grove in Florida that had some big big fire or something. If memory yeah, it, serves, yeah, it wasn't in Florida. It wasn't in Florida, but no, there was a Coconut Grove, and uh, there was another one. Hmm. I'm trying to remember the name of it in Philly. That that was like 1,800 seats, pretty close to us. But we were still the largest. At one time, Roger, and and all of you who are listening, we were the largest nightclub in the world. Yes. The largest nightclub in the world. Um, We had a chandelier that the the, the comedians used to say, that's Doris Massick's earring. It was so huge. It was so absolutely, there's a picture of it in in the service things. It was absolutely amazing. Um, when When we built the club, we didn't do it the regular way. I sat down, my mom sat down, my, uh, a person called Jack Wolf, who was an artist, sat down, and my dad, and we said, what do we need to build the, the most beautiful nightclub in the world? Well, first of all, we need to do something that wouldn't have poles. Because it, if you went to the Latin Quarter or you went to the Copacabana, the maitre d' would come in and sit you behind a pole. Then that was, that was Captain Schmier. You had to schmear him. Yes, he, he, yes. He put his hand behind his back. Yeah, right, ready, ready for a tip. And then he would move you out from behind the pole. Oh. Well, at the Town and Country Club, we had one pole way in the back, a lolly column. Lolly column was maybe about, if you can see me, about yay big, yeah, maybe, maybe six or seven inches in diameter. And sure enough, Vinny and Algy, who were our two maitre d's, they would take people and sit them behind that lolly column first until they got their schmear and then they went ringside. And that was too bad we didn't have more because I, I felt bad because they couldn't make a living. Right, no, right. No, no, they made a living. Listen, yeah. all of you out there, maitre d's were making very good livings, especially, especially maitre d's in a nightclub. Um, one day, my dad opened up a Vinny and Algie's drawer. It was a Saturday night. It was after the first show, before the second show. And guess what he found in that drawer? $7,000 in tips. $7,000 in tips. Back Vinny in those Al- days. Yeah, Vinny and Algie, if you're still alive, God bless you. You were terrific. You were the best maitre d's. Oh, that's fantastic. I used to sleep upstairs in the old club, which was called the Roadside Tavern. Mm-hmm. They had a little room and a bed for me upstairs. But when I heard the music, I came down the stairs. And who knew in those days there was a stripper on stage? So the waiters would run over to me and put a tray in front of my eyes and said, get back upstairs. <laughs> we, ne- in the, we, we never had a stripper strip all the way, but but we did have strippers. We, we were going to every single phase of show business. We didn't know. You know what you said, what, what caused it? It's the audience that caused it. It's the audience that made us grow. It's the we needed we needed audience because we were not in um, we were not a um, like Vegas. We didn't have any gambling, and and the the big acts were starting to get very very expensive. So what we needed was seats. If we had seats, then we could afford the big acts. 
And that's the real reason why. I mean, even in those days, Tony Bennett started with us, I think, at $200 a week. And Tony Bennett ended with us at $65,000 a week. Now, $65,000 a week was a lot in those days. Now, Tony gets $100,000 for one night. And he's still going strong. And he's still great. He's absolutely great. Have you seen him lately, Ian? I mean, that takes you way back. Only on television. Okay. Only, yeah. And he works. He works with a, a trio, uh, and jazz, and his voice is still so unique. And and I want you know he's a good guy. He was a good guy. He was a terrific straight arrow. I have pictures in the book of him sitting ringside, uh, with my mom dancing on the dance floor, and he was still the number one when we opened up the new room in 1955, the Town and Country Club. We opened we opened up with Tony Bennett. Because he was our baby and we had lines around the block. It was just amazing. Now, you had multiple shows, though, in this club. That's how you serve 6,000 people. You'd put on one show, followed by another show, followed by another show. And then you're serving these people for dinner, right? So there are so many challenges to that. I mean, restaurants today struggle with table turns and, and not having people, you know, there's this term called camping where, you, let's face it, we're in business. You want to provide everyone with an excellent dining experience, but there comes a point when someone's been sitting there for two hours and they're nursing their coffee. It's like, and you got to line out the door. I mean, you had to do this three shows a night with thousands of you're, seats. You're so right, Roger. But here's how we solved it. Go ahead. After show number one, which, which was an 11 o'clock show, maybe it went to, to, to 12 o'clock. All the lights went up. All the waiters put their the checks on the table. Yes. And 30 bounces in orange jackets yeah. held hands ringside and pushed forward so that everybody for the first show had to leave because oh. the lobby and the, and the parking lot yes. was filled yes. with people. Just oh, imagine... We had acres and acres and acres of parking. You'd and have to. could park 1,200 cars. Park 1,200 cars. Absolutely amazing. It was all on refilled land. They would fill that land with garbage. And for a while during the summertime, what a stink. Oh, my goodness. But we used that all for parking lots. Just, just imagine all these people driving up. Uh, there must have been about 40 or 50 uh, parking lot attendants that got into the cars, drove them away, and we had like a tunable trolley. We had something that looked like a fire engine. That went out to the, the outer lots. All the parking attendants hung on. It brought them back so we can get the next 30 cars and the next 30 cars and the next 30 cars. It was a feat. Dean Meek of the hotel school watched this, and he said, I have never seen anything like this. When I was 13 years old, my dad, who was vice president of the New York Nightclub Association, brought me to a meeting at the Latin Quarter. The Latin Quarter was owned by Lou Walters, who was Barbara Walters' father. Barbara Walters, I was like 13 or 14, was sitting opposite me. She was very pretty. She was in business, too. She knew everything about the business. She was really, uh, yeah, she was brought up like I was in the business. A lot of people wouldn't know that. Oh, I certainly didn't. Yeah, pretty girl, well-spoken. Yeah. And when you're in our business, in the nightclub industry, and you're starting four years old to seven years old to 11 years old, you're, you're way ahead of your time. I was an adult. When, at seven years old, I was an adult. I had my say at the dinner table, just even with everyone else. I gave my opinion just the way my mom and dad did. 
So I was talking about being brought up in the business. I was really brought up in the business. I was part of it. Every Monday night, we went and visited the Copacabana, the Latin Quarter, Jack Silverman's International, La Vian Rose. Uh, these were all different nightclubs in, in New York City. And I would be out to five o'clock in the morning on Monday nights. We get a note from the principal of my school saying, why is your son always late on Tuesdays? Well, I had to sleep late. <laughs> I was so tired. I think we couldn't tell them that I was out night nightclubbing on Monday night. But sometimes I miss Tuesdays altogether. Well, you were getting an education of a whole different kind, right? Right. right. That was life experience versus classroom experience. Yes. And look was, at look at how well that served you. You you, you hit it on that. I, I always say I have life experience. I really did. And being in the nightclub industry at that age, I was I was old before my time. Every weekend. Another one of my friends in Borough Park, Brooklyn, where we lived at that time, wanted to go to the club with me. So every week I brought another friend with me and we went roller skating on the dance floor in between doing some work because um, I love to work and I love to work in the kitchen. I loved making my sandwiches. And, and then then I got smart. It was really hot in that kitchen. Yeah, it was really hot. And so I said, you know something, I want to go out there. So I started out there at, as a, a busser, and by 16, I was the world's best waiter. I was unbelievable. I used to carry 16 covers in my right hand. 16 covers I could carry. That's a big tray, Ian. I know. I try to do that even now, only it's a little tough. It's a little tough because I'm sure that you teach how to carry a, a, a regular overweighter's tray, and I do the same thing. Only now I'm down to 12. I can't I can't carry 14 covers. No, it, it's just it's just four stacks of three each. And that's good enough. And that's an oval tray. And of course, I teach I teach how to carry the tray right hand. It should be the left hand. But but I have a little arthritis in my left shoulder. So I have to carry in my right hand. Although we teach our, our service to carry in the left hand so they can open doors with their right hand so they can shake hands with their right hand. So really, that waiter's tray should be carried, if you can, in the left hand. Left hand, fingers back, palm flat, tray on it. If you have to, you can just hold the tray with one or two fingers here. Um, when, I, when I'm teaching my class, I say, listen, what's ever best for you? I don't want you to drop the tray. So if you don't have enough strength in your, in your left hand, go ahead and do it in your right hand. And, and uh, I used to carry a tray in my left hand and a tray jack over my right shoulder and go near my, my, my table, take the tray jack down, open it up and put the tray down on it. Take the covers which were on, take two covers at a time, put them over two more covers, take um, uh, a dish in my left and right hand, sometimes two dishes in my left hand and one in my right hand and serve. And that's what I teach. And when you teach, what better way to do it than to show them that you can do it? Here I am, 80 years old, and I'm made to carry that. And, and some of the young ladies, until I teach them how, until I teach them the science of lifting a tray, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. Let's start you with two covers. Okay, four covers. Okay, six covers. And I would get them going until they can carry at least 10 or 12 covers. Mm -hmm. Because 10 is the average. Work up to it, yeah. Right. I don't know whether you teach, whether you teach uh, uh, you know, banquet service with, with, with covers or not. But uh, I do. Um, do you? Uh, we got into role playing quite a bit, and we had we would have staff 
take turns being the customer, take turns being the host, the busser, the server, and the bartender. And we would go through these really elaborate exercises. And I still teach this in some of my trainings today. And yeah, we would get into the carrying the covers over and the right way and the basics of hospitality, which to me is hugely important. Let me, let me, well, I want to ask you, what is your definition of hospitality? I'll tell you what mine is, but I want to know what yours is. Oh boy. What is hospitality? I know I read it once. Um, um, it's just pleasing the guests. That, that's it. Just I, I don't know what else to say. Th those those three words, pleasing yes. the guest, is hospitality. And and of course, it, it has a lot to do with attitude as well. So smiles are catching. If you smile, they'll smile. And it of course, begins I with a smile, doesn't it? It's not to bring their troubles with them. Leave your troubles at home. Yes, at the door. <laughs> yeah. So hospitality to me is pleasing the guest. I don't know those three words. I don't know what else to say. That is being hospitable. When you're I can't remember where I heard it, but it was over. It was probably 24, 25 years ago when I was first getting into this business, and I learned from someone or somewhere. I don't know where I heard it, but I learned that hospitality is absent when something happens to you. And hospitality is present when something happens for you. And therein lies the difference. And that's pleasing the guest. And with that comes, I use a term today that I call paramount service. And you and I, I'm sure, totally agree what paramount service is. And that is absolute consistency in the entire experience where that guest feels like they're the most important guest even if the place is full and you've got 3,000 people in the place, every person feels as if they're the only customer or the VIP, the best customer in the place. That to me is paramount service. I'm, I'm with you. Three things, three things that I teach. Yeah. Eye contact, name recognition, and kill for the guest. Do anything that is legal for a guest. There you go. Not legal, no good. Eye contact, name recognition, kill for the guest. Mr. Smith, how are you? It's so nice to see you again. Is Jimmy is Jimmy uh, at Harvard? I heard he was going to Harvard Law School. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I knew him. I memorized him. I knew what his likes were. Yes. Are you going to have the Chinese combo again that you always have? Right. And and um, there's the cheers uh, formula. Cheers. I know you're no, a believer in that. Is that scotch on the rocks with a twist? Right. Yeah. Now that's hospitality. Ian, I've got to ask you. So. That word consistency, because I know it was a point of pride with your family as you grew, whether it was a hot dog stand or, or it was an outdoor venue with dancing and then it became the world's largest nightclub, consistency. How did you maintain that exemplary service when you're serving 6,000 people on a Saturday night? How does every customer feel like they're the most important customer? There's got to be tricks and systems to that that every operator can trick. benefit from. Here's the trick. The trick is what you and I do. Training, 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 and more yes. training. There you go. Training yes. is the biggest morale builder in our industry. Mm -hmm. And most owners do not train their service. And if they train them, they train them wrong. Or they say, you know what? See that guy over there? He's been with me for 20 years. Just follow whatever he does. Well, he followed someone who followed someone who followed someone who followed a court jester in the Middle Ages, and they've all been doing it wrong ever since. Right, right. So there's a science to service. How did I learn it? Trial and error. CS, common sense. That was simply it. Before I went to Cornell, and I found out about Cornell, by the way, when I was with 
um, Barbara Walters at that meeting uh, at the, uh, the nightclub association, a, a, uh, a uh, lawyer sat down next to me and he said to me, are you a midget? He, I said, no, he said, well, boy, I'm watching you and listening to you and you know everything about how old are you? I said, I'm about 14 or 15 years old. He said, do you know there's a school for this? I said, no. He said, you're Cornell University, the School of Hotel Management. He says, I think this is the only one in the country. Well, I found that it wasn't. Michigan State had one, um, and that was Kellogg Institute. And we had, and, and uh, Cornell was sponsored by Statler. Statler later became Statler Hilton. I remember the Statler. Yes, I remember that. There was one in Boston. Yeah, huge hotel firm, uh, yes. Roger. So, so there were only two. At that age, I went to my father. I pulled on his jacket. I said, Dad, there's a school, Cornell. They teach this. He said, come on. He said, we're going home. We're getting dressed, and we're going to Cornell. And he took me up to Ithaca, New York. And I met Professor Meek, who was Dean Meek. And he was like, I don't know, he must have been about uh, 65 or 70 years old, white hair, and here I am, a kid. And I interviewed with Dean Meek, and he tried to get me mad. Oh, he really? said things yeah. to me, and I didn't get mad. I just smiled. He said, when you're of age, when you graduate from high school, you come here. You're going to the Cornell Hotel School. Because I had that feeling, you know, you couldn't get me mad. I just smiled. Everything was fine. You could not get me angry. Just impossible. And that's, that should be what we teach our waiters, too. You can't bring your troubles with you. Just keep those smiles on there. And and the smile the smile is catching. That's it. Yeah, I remember. You're bringing up memories for me. Uh, we had little signs placed throughout the service areas that reminded our staff of the service that we wish them to deliver and the things to keep in mind. And some of them said, go out there like you were shot out of a cannon and keep calm and rock on and all this kind of stuff. And they were just little motivational, you know, pick-me-ups because in the heat of battle, you got to maintain composure. You got to keep that smile on your face. You got to deliver that consistent service and all those things kind of helped the, you know, and it became our company culture. I called it a com the culture of hospitality, family, and fun. The hospitality part goes without saying. The family, the staff felt like they were part of our family. They treated our customers like they were family, and everybody had fun. You know, and it was that simple. Well, when I was teaching, I used to do something like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a $20 bill. Yes. That's to my forehead. All right? And I would stand up and start to talk with that. And I said, you want to make this? Then listen to me. And I'm going to teach you how to make a lot of money. <laughs> I love it. Oh, and they listen. <laughs> that was right? incentive. That, that, that yeah. was incentive. And it really, really did work. And a right. lot of things that I taught those days were just out of CS, just out of common sense. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Because I started teaching very, very early. I mean, here we were at 16 and I was a waiter. And, and, and my, my fellow waiters were in their 20s, their 30s. And some of them stayed with us for 20 years. They really did. And I still get emails from them. That's fantastic. And I just wanted to thank you. I just finished uh, my, my dental school. I couldn't have done it without you. Uh, working at the Town and Country Club was the way I made my living. Thank you and your parents. And it really makes you feel good. It, it really does. Oh, yes. 
And, and but keep consistency. I, I didn't. I want you to know. I'm, I'm 80 years old, but but oh six one three two six five six nine. Okay, that's my social security number. I say that to me every single morning to make sure I'm not getting Alzheimer's disease. So I have to make sure of that. But 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 uh, there I was at, at that age. And um, what did we do? My mom was Mrs. Consistent. We we set tables. We figured out a standard setting. We taught that standard setting. We figured out how to put a tablecloth on the right way, how to tablecloth off the right way. It was all training. It was all training. Me and my mom and my dad. My dad, not that much. My dad was in the kitchen next to the cash register. He watched the cash register. My mom wore a gown every single night. Long gown, touching the floor, and a pickup room. There she was in her long brown and a pickup room, picking up dirt on the floor. We were spotless. It was so clean, you wouldn't believe it. Um, every night, uh, a whole crew came in after we closed at about five o'clock in the morning. John Gooden, John Gooden was the head of our our crew from Jamaica, and he would come in with like I don't know, fifteen to twenty guys, because it was so huge. And by the morning, that place was absolutely spotless. You could eat off the floor. Um, our chef Albert came from West Point. Mm -hmm. We had ads in for a chef who can handle thousands of people. There you well, go. West Point, he handled thousands of people. Yes, so the cadets. Of West Point. Mm -hmm. He was Turkish. He was great. He was unbelievable. What a nice man. He stayed with us for many, 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 many years. Uh, when we closed, he left. And we closed in 1968. And the reason we closed was uh, we saw the handwriting on the wall. Uh, club, uh, what was the, the great um, uh, disco in New York? Club uh, 54, what was the name? Studio 54. Oh, 54. I had actually Studio been a couple of times. 1967, 1967, 1968. And everything was changing. Oh, totally. Everything. Oh, I, oh yeah, absolutely. It, it was, you know, it, it, was, it was all, you know, rock and roll and... and uh, Drugs in excess is what it was. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and a lot of dope. And, sure. and people started to come into our club with their fists closed like this. And the maitre d' would go over to them and pry open their fifth, and there were pills and dope. So we were fighting dope, and we just didn't want to fight it any longer. So in 1968, my mom and dad, they felt bad about me. They said, son, we're going to close the club. We're, we've had enough of this. We don't like the type of people that are now coming in. They used to come in dressed to the hilt, and, and now we're getting people coming in with dope. We, we saw this lineup in the back of our lounge. There was a there was a small restroom in the back of our lounge. And we saw this lineup in the back of our lounge. And we, we open, pulled open the door and there was a young lady sitting in the sink, taking on people one at a time. And it, this was just, this was not us. We, we, no, <laughs> we, 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 in my house, there was no cursing. I never heard my my dad ever use a four-letter word, ever. Never did. We were really straight arrows. Here we were in the nightclub. I'll tell you, it was a little good for me, too, because there I was in New Utrecht High School, and I was in my jacket and my blazer and my tie and pants and white bucks, and I was part of a, a whole clique that were all wearing jackets and white bucks uh, and ties, 
and there was other cliques, which were all leather jackets and boots and motorcycles. No one ever touched me. No one ever gave me a hard time. Since we're in the nightclub business, they all thought my father was the head of the mafia. So I was always safe. <laughs> and and from the time from early on, I knew that I had to go to Cornell. So I just studied, 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 studied. I hardly dated at all during high school. I made up for it in college because I loved the hotel school. The hotel school was a very unusual school. There were no tests, nothing in writing. Everything was practical. I came in, okay, Ian, take off your jacket and your tie and put on this uniform. Today, you're gonna be a waiter. Tomorrow, I was a bartender. The next day, I was operating front desk. Everything was practical. We loved the hotel school. We had only a, a class of a little over 100 people. And uh, it was us versus the ILR school, Industrial Labor Relations. We used to go outside the ILR school and march back and forth, and they would do the same thing in us. They were labor and we were management. So we used to have a, a, going, a going fight on between us and ILR at Cornell. I really loved Cornell. I hated to leave it. it was, and someday, someday, maybe I'll go back there and teach. And but you it, went on to the Army following hotel school? Uh, and 19, then you were in charge of 17 different officers types clubs, is that it? No, 17 different bar operations. There are bars, okay. I became, I became, I was one of those few people in the U.S. Army, Roger, that was doing in Army life, in, in the military, exactly what I was doing in civilian life. So I became a club officer. My, my um, uh, captain of the, of the, of the, uh, of the officers club was a drunkard. He was an alcoholic. And he used to say, Mac, Mac, old buddy. He couldn't say Mac, Dick. He used to say, Mac, old buddy, you just take over. I'm going to go have another drink. And and so I took over the officers club. And with the officers club on, on campus at Fort Lee, Virginia, where I, was, where I was stationed, we had 17 bar operations. So I was in charge of 17 bar operations, as well as the officers club, and the officers club, I was doing what I always did. I was running weddings. I was running bar mitzvahs. I was running promotion parties. I remember one day they were having a promotion party and I went in and I said, gentlemen, and my voice cracked. <laughs> so I got up on a chair. I, I made sure my voice was, was, was nice and deep. <clears throat> and I said, please sit down or I'm gonna have to have the MPs because they were now throwing glasses at each other. Oh, These yeah. are all lieutenants and captains, totally out of it, all throwing glasses at each other. Whatever I did, Roger, and I'm sure you're the same thing. I just made up my mind. Love it. Just love it. So I enjoyed the army. I really did. I was on active duty a little less than a year, but then seven years on reserves. And that was, you know, 1960s into the 70s was a, a tough time. And I missed, I missed uh, Vietnam, thank God. Uh, so by that time, I had a son and... Uh, I left, I left, I was about to become a captain. I had become, a, uh, I, was, I was second lieutenant and first lieutenant, just about to become a captain when I got out of the army. I loved the army, I loved it. Everything I did, I just made up my mind, enjoy it, why fight it? So I did, we made such good pals, such good, good pals. I happen to be Jewish and I remember, I remember when I'm in the army, one guy came to me and he says in a sudden accent, you Jew? 
you you're a Jew? I said, yes. He said, you're a nice guy. I never met a Jew. And we became buddies and friends. I mean, that was the army. It, it was terrific. You just have to take take life that way. Just whatever you're doing out there, who's ever listening to this, enjoy it. Being a waiter teaches you so much. It really does. My uncle Ted held the number one union waiter's button at the Plaza Hotel in New York. In 1963, when Uncle Ted passed away, Uncle Ted, as a waiter at the Plaza Hotel, was making over $100,000 a year. We were all borrowing from Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted was the rich person in our family. And Uncle Ted taught me so much. He really did. He, he, uh, he taught me how to walk. He taught me never point, never point, always open-handed. These are things Uncle Ted taught me. He said, if you have to take someone, a lady, which way is the ladies' room? He would take them under their elbow and lead them to the ladies' room. Don't go inside, but lead them to the ladies' room. And just, he, 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 was, he was a master of courtesy. And, and he learned on his own. He really did. Number one way to, by the way, we had somewhere between 16 and 19 unions in our club. Never had a problem. Never had a problem. Because the waiters union would supply us with all the waiters we needed. And most of them was, were well trained even before they came in. Of course, we retrained them our way. And our way was eye contact, name, recognition, and kill for the guest. That's it. Those three things, you were with us. And they made a lot of money. And they made a lot of money. And we were all friends. My mom, my dad, myself, and our waiters were all friends. We partied together. We had parties for them. We had Christmas parties. It was terrific. I mean, there was over 100 waiters. Over 100. And when we had Tony Bennett, or we had Bobby Darren, or we had Judy Garland. Uh, Judy, Garland Judy Garland was tough. Judy Garland was really tough. Uh, everything they said about her was right. She was on dope. Yeah, she used the worst words I ever heard in my whole life. My sergeants in the army could learn from her about about dirty words. She was really tough, and we stuck it out with her. Uh, She was sick. She was really... uh, Closing, I came back from Cornell to see Judy Collin on stage on a Sunday night. It was her last night. She came on stage. The back of her dress was open. She hit her head against the microphone. And started cursing and using curse words. And my dad from the kitchen over a loudspeaker said to the waiters, please escort her off stage, escort her off stage, take care of her, escort her off stage. She was on dope. She was on booze. Backstage, uh, she she had uh, gin and she had milk and she had water and she had coffee. So she would take the gin and pour it into the coffee and drink the coffee with the gin in she was really terrible, a dope addict and an alcoholic. But I want to tell you, we were sold out. We had her booked for like two and a half, three weeks, and we were sold out. But we were never able to do a second show because she was so out of yeah. second yeah, there's show. No way. Yeah. First show, first show was unbelievable. You're talking about um, Errol Flynn in the audience. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the Hollywood stars were in the audience, sitting ringside for Judy Garland. I was brought up in that. So you talk about you know being old before your time. I was old before my time. 
I really was. I loved every minute of it. I loved show business. That's why I'm good on stage. Um, in Vegas, I appeared in Bailey's. I appeared in the Paris Hotel. In Bailey's, I had a thousand caterers in the audience. A thousand caterers. And I went to the edge of the stage. I remember one day. And I said, those of you who don't use covers on your tray, don't use, please stand up. And out of a thousand caterers, about a hundred stood up. I went to the edge of the stage. I looked at them with a mean expression on my face. And I pointed and I said, oh, what did I say? <laughs> oh, cheap. I said, cheap, 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 cheap. And everybody laughed. And after my, my appearance, everyone went outside to one of the tables out there and bought plate covers. You know, the metal covers. Of course. Am I talking too much? No, I think it's a fascinating story. But I will ask you a, another question. Sure. You, you talked about Uncle Ted. Um, you also, you know, your grandma was an early mentor. Your grandmother, right? She gave you the very foundation of your philosophies that remain to this day. Tell us about some of those things. My grandma took care of me. My grandma was my pal. Um, yes. Because my mom and dad were working day and night. Um, it was a, a six day a week. We were always closed on Mondays. But six days a week, um, my grandma took care of me. I, I think there's a picture in my book of, of my grandma holding me when I was a little tot. You'll you find it near the opening pages uh, in my book. Grandma handled the check room. That was her, that was her realm, and she handled the check room so beautifully. With we had grace, two, I'm sure. Yeah, we had two check rooms because you, you couldn't have just one check room no. with that amount of people. So we had check room A and check room B because the people leaving after the first show went to check room A to get their coats, but the people coming in for the second right. show right. went to check room B to check their coats. Makes sense. And and wow. I don't another know, system. Yeah, everything was systems, systems, systems. Grandma was a real estate broker um, with an accent. Uh, she came over from Russia in 1916. Uh, she became a real estate broker. Her her um, husband, uh, my uncle, um, no, no, it was Grandpa, Grandpa Izzy. I was named after his. Grandpa Izzy or Grandpa Isaac, I was named Ian with an I after him. Right. And he died of the flu in the after the First World War, you know, there was the flu epidemic. And grandma became a, uh, a real estate broker, uh, self-educated, and she made a living and, and took care of my, my mom and my Aunt Flory. Uh, my mom had a sister, Florence. And uh, there you are. Uh, my mom met my dad when she was 16 years of age. He had just graduated from law school. Um, my mom was pregnant with me um, when when my my dad uh, was taking my mom across the Marine Parkway Bridge to the Rockaways to the beach, and she was pregnant. And we were, he was in all this traffic lined up on Flatbush Avenue where we put the club, and he sees all these cars lined up, and he turns around to my mom and says, "Look behind us. Look in front of us." Look to the left and right. I'm hungry. Are you hungry? And my mom said, yes, I'm hungry. And he said, let's open up a hot dog stand right here. He turned to the right and he saw a sign, lot police. And sure enough, it was police. He borrowed $300 from my great grandmother 
$300 in those days was a lot of money. And he leased that. And, he, and we had a lot of uncles, including Uncle Ted. And all the uncles came in. And my dad was always building, always in building. And he, he went to the, the lumber yard and he got logs. And he built a log cabin. Log cabin about the size of a men's room. Built a log cabin. Got a grill and a refrigerator and a sink. And he opened up the hot dog stand in 1937 and it was counter service only always as the roadside tavern or you eventually had seats no it was counter service yeah and then and then as as the the airmen going to floyd bennett field they didn't want to sit down wanted to dance wanted to jitterbug we listen to your customer always listen to your customer listen to your patron whatever they needed they wanted a dance floor when it rained we couldn't do it so we had to put a roof over it so we attached the roof to the hot dog stand. Then they wanted a little more variety. And that's when we started bringing in the different items, including Chinese food, which we were always famous for. Uh, we must have had three double walks, I think, in the kitchen. Whoops, no, I turned that off. Okay, three double walks in the kitchen. And uh, a Chinese chef behind all of them. And in their spare ribs. So it was authentic. It was authentic uh, Chinese food. One thing in their spare ribs, they always asked all the three chefs and the three asked for a bottle of gin. So my dad said, what are they drinking? No, it wasn't. They put gin in their spare ribs. Mm -hmm. so, so every day they needed a bottle of gin and the gin went into the spare rib sauce. I remember that. I would just like I was really part of it. I mean, I did everything you could do in the kitchen. But then it was just too hot, and I got outside, and and I, I found out that, that I liked FOH more than BOH. That yeah. means front of the house rather than back of the house. You know that because I teach that as well. So front of the house was nice, air conditioned, was terrific. I met great people. I remembered their names. I remembered what they eat. Eye contact, name recognition, and kill for the guests. I, I remembered all kinds of things about them, and and. Um, they remembered me, and later I began dating their their, their daughters. <laughs> so it, it was it was it was really nice. It, it, it was it, I was brought, I loved I loved my childhood. I loved my childhood. I was old before my age, uh, because I was part of the business, and uh, the the consistency again came from my mom. So consistent. My my dad used to um, joke. He said. We, we have uh, uh, 10 chairs in our home, not a scratch. My wife won't let me take them out of their boxes. He says, I sit on the radiator. It's uncomfortable, but at least it's on limits. My mom would pick up a little speck and yell, this dirt is here. Everything was dirty. It was like when I was in the army. Yeah. And, and uh, the, uh, the colonel would come over and look at me and say, mister, what is that rope on your uniform? I said, what rope? There was a little thread, a little thread on my uniform. And that to, to the colonel was a, was a rope. <laughs> I can see that, yes. And, and I, I kind of gained that from my That's mom. discipline. I mean, details matter in this business. And that's where you're going with this. I was very disciplined. And, and, and cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness was... My wife is like that now. She drives me crazy. <laughs> She really does. So, so my wife became became a, a a sister of my mom with cleanliness. So I can't help it. Restaurants should be clean. It, they really should be. And that's one of the first things that people look at. They do. And I teach that. 
Eye contact, name recognition, kill for the guests. Cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness. Personal cleanliness. Very, very important. How you look. Pardon me for my little beard now. My, my wife, my wife says it takes away from my bald head. And yet when I'm teaching and I'm in front of my students, I, I clean shave because I don't want them. I, I want to do a great first impression and I want them to be clean shaven. Nowadays, it's kind of funny, though, uh, Roger, I, I'm sure you find ponytails are in and beards oh, yes. in. Yes. Uh, I don't know whether whether you you say okay or you. Well, it depends say, on no, the concept, Ian. You know, I mean, concepts are multifaceted now, and millennials. I mean, that word comes up every day in this business now, and millennials are you know up to the minute, and they're on their technology, and they're on their phones, and it's all about self-expression. And there are certain restaurants that thrive having millennials as staff and millennials as customers. So if it works for your concept, that's fine. You know provided you're still offering courtesy and the basics of service because i don't think any of that ever grows old you know taste change and concept shift and all that sort of thing but i think that the basics of what we're talking about are important in any establishment but in my restaurants i mean we did not have a fine dining operation we had a family casual series of restaurants we had a very busy bar we did well, I can't compare it with 6,000 covers, but on a Saturday right. night, we might do 900 covers. We turned our tables, you know, three, three and a half times. But then we had a huge bar business with live entertainment. We called it the Three Ring Circus. But we encouraged our staff to use their unique personality, whatever they were, and just be genuine with the customer. Make friends with the customer. Be who you are. And if you have a ponytail, that's fine. That's who you are. As long as you're courteous and you're friendly and you deliver that exemplary service, we didn't. We could overlook certain things, and our customers didn't mind. We were a casual place. We were at a resort area, so it worked for us. And I know it works for a lot of other concepts. I'm with Fine you. Dining and you know might be a little 100%. different. Yeah, I, I I won't poo poo the beard. I won't poo poo the the the, the ponytail, <laughs> the mustache, or any of that. Keeps you as young. Long, you look great. As long as guest is happy, mm -hmm. as long as the guest is happy, that, that that's very very important. I want to, I teach, and I'm sure, I don't know if you do, but service wows. In other words, ways to, to impress uh, your guests, not only with what you say, mm -hmm. but with what you do with your movements. So one of my biggest, one of my biggest service wows, I don't know if you can see that. We care about you. Right. Uh, yeah, well, this was, this was a, a restaurant group that I worked with for many yeah. years. Uh, called It's Our Pleasure Hospitality, the South Finn Grill, the Vanderbilt South Beach, the uh, Ari Rangabachi, and the Grand Plaza. These were uh, casual and some very formal restaurants. And in every one of them, I taught about my, my, uh, my splash guard. My splash yeah. <laughs> yeah, here I am. Here, here, can you see this? Okay, here's I a can. cup and a salsa. All right. Mm -hmm. and, um, Okay. And here's a pitcher, cup and saucer pitcher. And normally waiters would go to the table, pick up the cup and saucer off the table, sometimes just pick up the cup and not the saucer, which I didn't like. Sure. And in the aisle, pour and then put it all back. And I see where I, that's going. No, I would shoot off a gun. I would shoot off a gun. I'd say no, or, or I would blow a whistle. I'd wear a whistle. And I blow a whistle and say, no, service sin. Number one, service sin. 
That's when accidents happen. Why on earth would you annoy them and say, pardon me, and go into the right-hand side and pick up the cup, let's see, pick up the saucer. The saucer is there to protect anyone from spillage. So hold the saucer. We don't want your hands on the cup. We don't know where your thumb has been. So we want, we want you to pick up to do it on the saucer. But leave the saucer there. Don't pick it up. Don't say pardon me and pick it up. Just pour. Pretend this is on. Pretend this is on the on the table, and I'm pouring. And when I'm pouring, I'm going to use. I'm going to use my splash guard between the pitcher and the glass and, and the cup and pour. Boop 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 boop. Come on up under here, and that's it. And the guest would say, "We care about you." And the guests would go wild. And they'd actually talk, I never saw that before. You really do care about us. So every time I teach in a different restaurant or hotel or country club, I always make sure that they get a, a plate. This is salad side plate or a portion size plate. And we care about you, both sides, so they see that. That's a service wow. That's something you don't see anywhere. And it's there to stop any spillages. And it really makes sense. That's just one of many service wows. When I pour water into a glass, I use a napkin and I hold the napkin between the guest and the glass and I pour so there's no splash. And when I'm doing that and pouring, boop, 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 I'm pouring and up this comes to catch any drip or condensation off the pitcher, the glass remains on the table. You may not teach this, but I do. Never, ever, 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 ever pick up a glass. And if you do pick up a glass, I found people picking up a glass here. But that's where their germs are. My germs should not mix with their germs. So if it's a stem glass, hold it by the stem. If it's if it's a high ball, hold it by the base. So never the germs shall mix. <laughs> I'm talking to, I'm really so adamant on this. You can see it in my expression. I'm, well, I'm, I'm angry at them. If they do. You wrote the book. I mean, let's talk about that. You wrote a book called Service Stinks. And it does in so many businesses, hospitality businesses, service retail, all kinds of businesses. We all have these experiences where you can walk out of there and say the service stinks, right? And, and it's it not shouldn't only, happen. It's not only verbal. It's not only uh, how guys to 20 women it's not only that it's it's it, it, it's your physical motions that are so very important because service is both verbal and physical bob brown who i've told you about who's my partner in crime uh and here's his uh, yeah here's his bob's book which has become my bible little brown book of restaurant success mm -hmm. certainly he sold heard of it. hundreds of thousands of these it's it, it, it's about a 90 minute read. It's great. It's just so basic. It really is. He and I go on the road as the feel. That's me and spiel. That's him. The feel and spiel of service. And together we're dynamite because he will teach them how to sell a particular item and I'll come out and teach them how to serve that particular item. So we're really good together. Service we and sales. Absolutely. Right. The two go together, the two complement each other, and they're 
they shouldn't be lacking in any dining experience. I mean, service and salesmanship together, and like you said, taking care and pleasing the customer, all those things. How about catering? In your restaurants, did you do parties? We did, yes. Uh, we didn't do outside catering, but we did lots of private events, uh, you know, corporate events and rehearsal dinners, and we did our share of weddings and all those things. And yeah, I mean, that's just a great way of knowing how many people are coming in advance. And, you know, it's just such an efficient and profitable piece of the business. Everyone should be doing it. All of you people out there who, who are listening to us, listening to Roger and myself, the net in a restaurant is 7 to 9% net. We don't make that much money in a restaurant. The net in catering is 30 to 50%, sometimes even more. Yes, it's a beautiful it's so thing. easy. Everyone yes. gets the fruit cup. Everyone gets the same soup. Everyone gets the piece of prime ribs with the baked stuffed potato and the string beans, almond bean, parfait for dessert, and coffee. Boom. Done. Easy. Cinch. Quick. Catering must be part of any successful restaurant operation. Meaning banquets. Banquets are catering. Well, I use the catering, both in-house catering and off-premise catering. Now, I, I did lots of off-premise I mean, um, the largest the largest party that I did was Nabisco Grand Prix tennis tournaments for five years, feeding fifty five thousand people. That's unbelievable. In so many wow. tents, you couldn't, you couldn't see. And yeah. I had to make each tent, which was a corporate tent, I had to make them feel as though this was a personal menu. So I said, let me see. Um, what are we gonna do? Carrots and peas. String beans, Dean, you wouldn't believe it. You could die for it. They're so good. They're so delicious. What do you think everyone took? Everyone has string beans, Dean. So every single tent, even if there were 50 corporate tents, had exactly the same meal, and each one thinking that it was personalized to their needs. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the Dean. My first job um, when I was in high school, I was a dishwasher at a country club. And I was later promoted to bartender, and that was a huge step up because I made the big bucks then, and I made personal relationships with the customers. But when we were dishwashers, every single weekend, there were probably three weddings on each day, Saturday and Sunday, and it was all choreographed like clockwork, and the dishwashers would become the servers on the line plating all these dishes. Green beans, the, the chicken, the capons, and the green beans, almondine, and one would pour the gravy, and the other would spoon the beans, and one would wipe the plates, and out they would go. And we did this week after week after week, and I saw that in my sleep after a while. Right? That was just a staple to, of the banquet business. Oh, yes. I went to a seminar in New York, um, and That's it so said funny. you just cannot be a success in the restaurant industry unless you have banquets and catering. You have to be no, able to have that. I'm totally in agreement there. So, Let's return to the service. You, you had said uh, at some point, I, it's probably in service stinks. You claim that 73% of diners return because of the service and twelve only 12% return because of the food. And 5% from miscellaneous. Right? I've always believed that too. I've always said that, you know, great food can't save average service, but fantastic service can save an average meal, you know? I mean, there's always going to be the element of human error there. We make mistakes. But if you treat the customer and if your staff are empowered to fix the guest's experience, even if something goes south, guaranteed they're going to come back and try you again. 
But if you're indifferent about the service, you can put out fantastic food. And if your staff are surly or indifferent, they just don't care, you're not going to come back and you're going to tell 100 people about that experience, no matter how good the food was. You know, it's just the way it is. First impressions, first, you and I are both on first impressions. How you yes. look, first impressions. Mm -hmm. Being clean, smelling clean, no, no alcohol on your breath. Um, you know, if you have to have, take a mint before before you open your mouth. But I would, when I was a waiter, I would check everything. And if I didn't check it, my mom would check it for me, right? And now my wife checks before I go on stage. Everything is checked. Everything is checked. She doesn't. Your hair is too long. Your hair is too short. Get rid of the of the of the beard, or go ahead and shave, or don't. Ah, oh my God, what I go through. And you know something? She's right. She's right. It's all first impressions. And right. And check and balances. You know, you know when I was running restaurants, Ian, I trained my entire team to think and act like an owner, to treat everything as if they had to pay for it, and to put themselves in the customer's shoes and to notice. I always called it the business of a thousand details, and even if you get 990 of those details correct, it's the 10 you miss that the customer always sees. But suddenly, if you've got a whole team with two sets, of, you know, with a set of eyes, and you walk them through the front door from the parking lot through every guest contact area of the restaurant and empower them to fix what's broken, the customer only gets an exemplary experience. And that uh, was such a huge part of our training. Yeah, um, K and C, kind and caring. If you are kind and caring, that will come out over everything. You, you, you can have a stain on your, on your shirt, you could, you could put your, your elbow in their face, but if you are really kind and caring, they will accept it. They will understand it. They will know it, and they will come back to you. So having great service is really being kind and caring. It's humanity. We're, we're human beings, right? And and we have to we have to teach all of feel make our customers feel as though they're part of the family. There's that and, word family again. It's so true. Absolutely. That's what builds a brand. I mean, now we're talking about building a strong brand because. I learned a long time ago that your staff are your brand ambassadors. We taught and trained our staff to be their own brand within the larger restaurant brand that we have. And then suddenly our customers became our best marketers. We didn't spend any money on advertising anymore. It was all about word of mouth because the staff took care of the customers and the customers sang our praises and told everyone they knew about what great experiences, what great times they had. It was all about food service and ambiance. All those things were equally important. But that's a powerful formula when your staff are having fun, they're making more money, the customers are having more fun and spending more money, and they're your best marketers. And that is a magic formula if I, I ever learned you, one. I want to take you and hug you and kiss you right now, really. Exactly exactly what we both teach. Yes. And and it, sometimes it's hard for them to learn that. Um, and sometimes they're nervous, you know, especially when we're teaching. Take it easy. Be nervous. Don't worry. And I take out my gun and I shoot it. I have a, I have this big gun that says bang on it. Oh yeah, I remember those. Those are fun. Yeah, and I bang. and I wear a whistle. And if yes. someone falls asleep on me, I go right up to them and I blow the whistle, and That's they wake great. up. Of course. <laughs> I try to use. Ian. Listen, we're in show business, you and I. We're in show business. That's we, it. We have to make. Yeah. You have to make our training sessions a lot of fun. For sure. Really? Fun is, yeah, I mean, that's a key element. Interactive and fun and engaging because otherwise that's when, Ian, Mr. Maxick, professor of service, can we take a break? It's like you got to keep them engaged. But you're right. The work ethic has sort of slipped a little bit. But, you know, that's all about finding what I call the A-team. 
and, and your B team are the up-and-comers. They need a little bit of polish, but they got the right approach. They got desire, a true desire to serve the customer, and we can train the rest. I, I rarely hired for experience. I hired for attitude and a true desire to serve, you know? And, Unbelievable. And That's, That's exactly it. what I say. Experience, no. Attitude, yes. Experience, no. Uh, uh, two people come in to join my agency. Uh, one person, one person comes in nice and early. He's wearing a white short sleeve shirt with a tie and very clean jeans. And he says, Mr. Maxick, I have never done this before. I need a job. Please teach me. I will do, I will do so good. I will follow everything you, you tell me. I need this job so badly, please. I said, fine, okay, sit down here, fill out this, fill out this application and I'll be with you in a moment. Meanwhile, another guy comes in late, holes in his jeans, wearing flip-flops, and saying, how y'all doing? Uh, I, I've worked in a million places. I don't need any training. You can't teach me anything. I know everything, right? I've been doing this all my life, right? And he's got bad breath, and he looks terrible, and, and he, everything is torn, and everything is ugly. Who do you think I hired? The same person, the first person. And he turned out to be a gem. He became yes. a captain. He became a maitre d'. He became another trainer along with me because he needed it and he cared. And it was first impressions and he made a great first impression. Now, I, I have all these thousands of people who I get emails from who were my servers. And, and they were all first impressions. And they're still great first impressions. And they're doing terrifically. And they, some of them just stayed in the industry with all the different, with all the different, um, no, unions, unions. Yeah, yeah, we, we had 19 unions. And, and so what? The, the Waiters Union was, was uh, local two, local two in New York, Waiters Union. They all came from kosher catering establishments. And that was our Waiters Union in Brooklyn. They were terrific. They were wonderful people, especially if you treated them with respect. And you took the time to train them and not talk down to them. Let me teach you a way that I think will put a little more money in your pocket. Let me show you a little trick of the trade. How about doing this? I'm not talking down to them. I'm not. Always build them up. They're great people. They're human beings. And they wind up being your senator or your, or your, or your lawyer or your doctor or your Indian chief. And sometimes they're using this uh, uh, being a waiter just as a stepping stone. And so many of them stayed with us all the way through because they made so you know, much money. Yeah, similar experiences. I mean, I had a seasonal, I had a series of seasonal restaurants. They were only open four months a year. And we built such a dream team staff that 95% of those people would come back season after season. They'd go find another job and then they would all come back. And that was the family. And my very first employee in my very first restaurant at age 15 was a dishwasher. Within a week and a half, he was closing the restaurant three nights a week, sending the credit card batch. I mentored him for several years. He became the kitchen manager of two of my restaurants and put out the cuisine and the menu and managed the staff. He was great at costing the menu. And he learned so much in our operation, he went on to open his own restaurant 18 years later. You know, so this is the business where you can start at the very bottom and go to the very top. You can open a chain of restaurants. You can be hospitality executive. You can do anything without a formal education if you just learn and apply yourself 
and really care about serving the public. And anything is possible. You know, it's amazing. I agree. I agree. All of you listening out there to Roger, Roger and myself, this will happen. This has really happened to both of us. They came in in a short sleeve shirt and a tie and some nice pants and became and became captains, maitre d's and owners of restaurants themselves. This is the one way in America. God bless us. Really, that industry where you can build yourself up from a dishwasher to an owner and maybe even an owner of chains. It really happens. It really does. Both Roger and myself can prove it to you. Ian, what last words of advice would you give our audience in any area of anything we talked about today? It could be service related. It could be training related. It could be, you know, staff or customer related. What would you say to anyone who listened today? I mean, you have a fascinating story. I'm so glad we covered the gamut of pretty much everything you've done in such a long, illustrious career. What would you say to people? Have a passion for what you're doing. If you don't love it, they can tell. So you've got to make yourself love it. And if it doesn't work, then leave it. It's not for you. You've got to love what you're doing. And service is a love affair. It really is. Eye contact, name recognition, kill for the guest. That's that's my three things. Uh, that's, what, that's what I'll leave you with. Eye contact, name recognition, first impressions. First impressions are very important. You've got to look good. You've got to smell good. You've got to have good breath. You have to be able, as if you're one of the, pretend you're interviewing uh, your your daughter's possible husband. I got to tell you what I went through with my wife. <laughs> my mother-in-law looked me over. My father-in-law looked me over. They went downstairs. They got the they got the license plate off my car. They were they were so worried. Well, that's what you've got to do with with people who come for a job. You really do, and and they have to be able to understand that. That is really important. Um, yes, it's all about impressions. Of course it is. It is. On both sides of the coin. The first impression when you're interviewing someone and then how is the customer going to perceive this person, you know, in the front of the house? Or even if, you know, you have an open line kitchen in your back of the house. It's like everything is about an impression. I totally agree. Ian, you've been a pleasure and a fascinating guest, and I'm so glad that you shared at this time with us on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Is there a way that uh, our audience can contact you if they're interested in what you do and yes. further information? I guess the best way really is email ian at usawaiter.com. That's I-N sure at usawaiter.com. And you can, you can purchase my book or I, I probably purchase your book uh, via our emails, uh, via our email addresses. Right, we we both have books. That's We're correct. both authors. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have another I have another book called The A to Z of Professional Table Service. It's a smaller version of Service Stinks, um, and uh, that's it. Uh, Ian at usawaiter.com. I will look forward to hearing from you, and I do answer any questions with patience. I do, and I'm sure so does Roger. It's, it, Roger and I are really joined at the hip. It, it's just terrific. <laughs> It's been such a pleasure getting to know you, Ian, and thank you so much for being our guest. And I'm sure we'll be in touch uh, again soon. Thanks I, a lot. I know we will. I know we will. In the in the industry, when something is over, you know what we say: eighty-six. So That's eighty-six. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. And next time that we meet, I'll tell everybody about the history of eighty-six, where it came from. I'd like to hear that myself. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure having you. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye, and 86. 86, Ian, thank you. 
Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.